0: Hey there, I'm Vicki Howell. Welcome to Craftish. This episode is sponsored by Sticker Giant. Stickers are everywhere, and every sticker has a story. And that's why the folks at Sticker Giant love what they do. They take your passion and help you share it with the world. Stickers are like portable billboards because they can go anywhere. At StickerGiant.com, you can get custom stickers and labels printed and out the door in 24 hours. Sticker Giant offers free custom shapes, free shipping, and it's easy to order. Everyone at Sticker Giant is quality minded and stickers are their passion. So you can take advantage of a limited time offer of 20% off of your own order of stickers with coupon code StickerStory. Visit StickerGiant.com today. This week I talk with crochet designer, foodie fashion maven, YouTuber, and creative entrepreneur Twinkie Chan. We gab about going from a career as a literary agent to a well-branded face of our own company, the importance of embracing the things that make you different, and how we as creative types can give ourselves permission to take the next step, whatever that means for us personally. I really enjoyed hanging out with Twinkie, and I'm so happy to introduce her to you now. Twinkie Chan, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Vicky. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I want to start off by saying happy birthday week, lady. Oh my gosh, thank you. I kind of already forgot. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you mean? This is a kind of a big one. So you're entering <laughs> into a new decade. I am indeed. <laughs> and as someone who has entered into several new decades herself, um, <laughs> I'm wondering if it at all feels transformative to you, whether it be creatively... Um, you know, whether it creatively insinuates some kind of rebirth or just as a creative entrepreneur, if it puts any sort of stress or expectations for what you'd like the next decade to look like? Or, or do you just not even think about that at all and you're just in it to win it at any
1: given time? Um, I mean, normally, I mean, my, my brain wants to say it's just another year, you know, like, no big deal, it's fine. But I have to say the decade either fortunately or unfortunately kind of messes with your head a little bit. Um, I definitely feel like I'm at a crossroads. Like, I've kind of felt like that for a couple years. But, of course, now, you know, as my birthday is approaching on Saturday, I mean, I've definitely been wondering, you know, like, what do I want to do with my business? Um, I, You know, there's certain things that I feel like I want to maybe weed out and maybe other things I want to try to bring in. And I I don't know. I'm kind of – I'm definitely – at a place where I don't really know what's going to happen next. And you can either approach that, you know, thinking about it being really exciting or it could be really scary. So I'm trying to think about it as more of an exciting thing (laughs) than freaking out. Yeah.
0: Is this, um, does it feel any different than it did, you know, the last big birthday as far as, I mean, because you've come, the past decade for you has been pretty big as far as establishing, You're you're so clearly branded, and so but but you balance that beautifully between also being an artist. So does it look any different to you now than it did, say, ten years ago?
1: Does it look well? I mean, definitely, ten years ago, I was just starting out. Like, I still was working in publishing. Um, Crocheting was definitely just a hobby and something I did on the side. Uh, And you know, throughout the years, it's been something I picked up full time. And I, so to me, I mean, things definitely look different. They definitely feel different. You know, to be honest, when I first started, I really focused on, um, you know, selling finished product, and I was really into my Etsy store, and now I really kind of... I, mean, I'm not, I haven't really talked about it yet, but I really feel like I'm kind of tired of maintaining an Etsy store. You know, I'm kind of tired of gluing on the pom-poms and sewing on the sprinkles. So yeah. I definitely... I've been enjoying kind of the teaching side more and more selling patterns. So that's why I'm kind of at a place where I'm like, what's next? You know, I really admire people, creative people particularly, who are able to uh, sort of evolve and say goodbye to the old thing and say hello to the new thing. So I'm kind of excited about figuring out what that means for me.
0: I think that um, something that you that you mentioned is really important for a lot of makers in this day and age, in the age of Etsy, and it, and it really is an age of Etsy. Of course, there are other online options for e-commerce, but it, that really the the advent of uh, of Etsy really changed um, the world of handmakers in many ways. Um, but a lot of us realized or are realizing the difficulties in producing handmade goods and for it to, you know, generate a livable wage and mm-hmm. and um, do all of the things that you'd want it to do to increase your business. So we have to re-examine. And for some people that might mean having something mass-produced but still putting it in their shop, finding a way for it to still work within the deadline. Some people walk away completely and, um, Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's important for us as entrepreneurs to talk about this and talk about things that worked and didn't work or even just, you know, open up the conversation to, you know, even people at your level of success are feeling that way that it just, it may not necessarily be the road
1: to travel
0: yeah. forever.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, when I started my Etsy shop, frankly, I didn't, Believe that that would be the thing I could make a living wage off of, especially. I mean, you know, with crocheting and knitting, it's so time consuming. Yeah. And it's really hard to sort of make a profit in a real, real life, grown up, businessy kind of way. And I did attempt the mass produced side as well. I have had slash have um, my license line, Yummy You, by Twinkie Chan. And that was a really interesting and Strange experience. I mean, it was definitely leaping from the craft world to the apparel world. Well, talk about that. Talk about
0: okay. um, the origin of Yummy You, and because that is, I mean, I, I think many artists consider it if they're not ripped off by other big companies. They consider just diving in themselves. Um, yeah. and it's a natural progression. So, what did that look like for you?
1: Well, for me, I definitely was like if. If someone's going to do it, it's got to be me. <laughs> right. So I definitely wanted to try to just, to just give it a chance. Um, I was approached really early on by a licensing and branding guy in L.A. And he was like, hey, have you ever considered this your career? And, you know, we should talk about licensing. And at the time, you know, I was coming at it more from an artist's perspective. And I was like, oh, that sounds like selling out. That sounds bad. <laughs> and he was really used to working with artists and he said, you know, it's not selling out, it's making a live it's just one way to make a living. Right. Uh, doing what you love to do. And it kind of took me, you know, at least a couple of years to get my brain up to that speed and thinking it's okay, you know, it's okay to let go of making every single piece and it's okay that someone's owning something that you love and you designed but you didn't necessarily make with your own hands and that that can be a diff- really difficult leap to make and I think I talked to a lot of other crafters about that too. Um, but it's,
0: it's really hard to, I mean, if you have a strong work ethic, it almost feels like you're taking credit for other people's work. And it's such a, it's such a weird conundrum that I think that is fairly unique to, to the creative industry.
1: Yes. Yes. True. Um, and like when you're at a point where you're spinning your wheels and you want to make the next step, I mean, it's just sort of like, you know, you, you have to take stock and really think like, (laughs) How, is there any way that I can expand my business and not have my hands on everything? And it's kind of no, <laughs> you know, like you're one person, you can only do so many things. You have to learn to kind of let go on on some points eventually if you really want to, you know, go to part two of your career. So, um, I, it, it, it is some soul searching, and it takes some people, you know, longer to get there, and takes some people less time. But I, I really do think it took me some time. Um, and I, there was a sort of a middle point too. I mean, I, I started to hire, um, helpers, just, you know, girls would contact me and say, Oh, I would actually really love to learn from you and to work for you. And that also took me a little time, even as a middle step to get to, cause I still was like, someone else's hands are going to be on this piece. Right. Um, letting it, go of that control. Yeah. But I mean, the first girl who I was like, okay, let's try this, let's do it, you know, Um, Let's sort of have sort of a, a testing period with each other. But she was so great. And like her crocheting was beautiful. And she was just a really nice person. And she ended up working with me for years. So I think that one first positive experience sort of made me okay with letting go. I was like, okay, this is this feels good. I can do this. <laughs> so I think if you can take like a baby step, it's really
0: helpful. I also think another way that I think that I've sort of, you know, soothes my own soul for the, you know, in the same respect is I, I just recently put out a call for a huge uh, production thing that I'm, I'm working on. And I've gotten so many um, submissions from stay-at-home moms or people that are maybe, you know, on disability for whatever reason, or, or people, just a lot of people that I can give work to, even if it's not, I, I mean, obviously in our industry, as we've already touched that, it's, you're not going to make a living off of, of you know, physically producing in that respect. But just to be able to give a little bit of work uh, to someone who could could use it is is also a really a valuable not only it's not only valuable but it's another way of being creative you're creating that space for someone else to use their hands and you're also creating even if it is small on a small level a job
1: right very true um a, a woman who helps me now sort of out of the blue I got a Facebook message from her husband you know someone who I've never talked to before and he was so sweet he was just like Thank you so much. And, you know, Emmy just loves her work with you so much, and it really helps our household. And it was, like, so sweet and kind of out of the blue. And it, it really was like, oh, that makes me feel really good. Thank you. You know, just you know, the nice, unexpected messages that come from all of this are really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think also it's worth mentioning to
0: talk about uh, what you said about selling out, which is a very common uh, a common sort of thing head game that mm-hmm. i think artists of all walk of life you know musicians actors yeah. photographers all, all, all of us sort of struggle with um and i feel like it's really important for us as you know as people in the industry or the creative industry with a voice to to state that you're only selling out if you're selling out your own integrity Right I, th- I think there's something super punk rock about being able to walk your creative path and that be the way that you make your living even if you have to branch off here and there even if even if maybe you're you're working on something that isn't your exact vision all of the time, if your overall goal is to put out that positivity or that art or that message or whatever it might be, then, you're not selling out what you're doing is you're creating a viable
1: business and a creative life for yourself right I totally completely agree yeah it, it is um it I'm thinking of a particular friend slash crafter um that I talked to and I I think she's always at the point where she's like I don't know what to do next I'm like girl you need to get help and you need to make that leap and I you know there's no kind of Word of advice or exercise that I can give to someone to let them know that, you know, like it's okay, like there's still your designs, it's still you, you're still going to be influencing, you know, the pieces that are going out, even if your hands aren't on everything. And I, I don't know if there's some like ebook out there or something to help people. Uh, be kind of more okay with expanding and going to the next step like if it's not out there maybe we need to do that <laughs> you know okay.
0: i mean honestly it doesn't even it does it doesn't even need to be the length of an ebook it could be cross stitch on a pillow <laughs> like true. like That's you're true. valuable it's okay branch out
1: right because, like grow
0: it's okay to grow because I mean. here's the thing if we worked in the fashion industry this would be a non-issue
1: very true. Do you think
0: Gwen Stefani is behind a sewing machine anymore? True, like, true. she was in her beginning, no doubt, days when she was putting those rhinestones on her tank tops. But true. no, she's she's in a room saying, look, I, I really want to focus on plaid this, this you know, f- yeah. <laughs> fall, or I'm really into studs right now. What can you show me? Like, she's got her hands in it as the leader of a creative process.
1: Right, right. Um, that's a good point.
0: But for whatever reason, if you work in the crafting industry or if you're an illustrator or if, you know, I think to some extent, if you're a potter or a photographer, it feels different.
1: Right, right. I mean, I'm going to be 100% honest and perhaps that is my downfall. But, you know, with stuff like crocheting and knitting and I'm sure also with um clothing and other accessories when you do go to a mass level I mean there is a certain level of quality and materials or workmanship that is not going to be the same like it's just you know if you keep going back and forth with the sampling process like you're never going to get any product out and that's been a hard concept for me to explain to, to accept and like my best friend is like you know you, you need to keep fighting on the sampling and I'm like girl if I did that like nothing whatever exists like wait. so there is a certain right. point where you have to be like okay with what's happening or maybe you don't maybe I did it wrong I don't know you know I don't know well do you right just step everything. back and
0: do you just say okay I need to step back and look at what the big picture is
1: Right, right, it's like
0: the whole micromanaging versus macromanaging thing is that how it is or do, or do you just sort of go with your gut if it feels for the lack of a better term icky then, yeah. you, push, <laughs> then you push back on it and if not like how did that so I mean you've been because your stuff is on uh, mod cloth and hot topic I mean big name places so there had to have been significant amount of um, merchandise put out there so you had to have compromised in some way at some point in time
1: yes um I mean, like, for me, with my work, I mean, I love color so much, and color is so important to me. And even if they're, you know, custom dyeing the yarn for your thing, and it's not right, it's sort of like, how many times is your licensing partner going to allow you to force, you know, the manufacturer to re-dye the yarn? Like, they're really not in all reality so sometimes you have to be okay with you know that pizza crust isn't really the color that i love but overall is the product really cool still yes it is it's not 100 percent how i would do it but you know in the end there was a slight compromise and you kind of have to go with the flow so i do think ick factor is a good way to look at it um, you know, some pieces go out perfectly and some are just maybe not how you envisioned it. And is that selling out? I, I, You can't think of it that way anymore at that point. At that point, you know, you're doing your business and you have shipment dates and sometimes you just need to get the shipments out, you know,
0: and... I also think that you're giving a little bit of yourself when you're when you're putting out your designs and you only have so much of you to give. So if you're making... If you yourself, as Twinkie, are hand making a piece to sell in your Etsy shop, or you know to to be a part of the Hello Kitty you know runway show, or you know any of the cool things that you've done, then it needs to cost more, and that yeah. makes it a little bit less accessible to some people. So oh, if one of your if one of your you know professional goals is to open up your world to make it more accessible to others. Then there's going to have to be some compromise in quality, and that's just—I mean, look, I mean, look, look at all the designer, all of the designers that have worked with Target, Mary Mecco, yes. like yes. Um, Isaac Mizrahi, you know, Adam Lippis, whatever. Like, obviously, the quality of those clothes are not going to be the same as what's walking down the runway. But right. you or I—well, I don't know—I myself would not necessarily be able to afford, you know, a. a Hot couture piece, but I can't afford to get that awesome Mary Mecca, like beanbag for my daughter, right. you know, oh, for
1: sure, for sure.
0: Um, and I think there's value in that. I think there's value in accessibility, as long as there's a conscience behind it. Right, right. No, I, I 100% agree. So you had this licensing agent approach you, how as so I, I was fascinated to read, I did not know this about you that you, you. Um, before this this incarnation of your pro- professional life you were a literary agent yeah <laughs> so how do, how does how how does the agent in you respond to another agent coming to you w- with requests the way that I'm sure that you did for writers
1: uh, well the the person who approached me wasn't an agent himself he was kind of more of a branding guy but he had a lot of contacts so he would connect me with the licensing agents and we would sort of all work together um so there were kind of there was there was more than just two you know pieces in this puzzle and um he kind of dealt more with the agents directly than I did and um I, I mean as far as I couldn't make quite a parallel or it's, it's kind of not, um, it's, they're they're kind of just different industries and they work differently. And those agents work differently than we would work in the publishing industry. Like I think we were, I felt we were way more hands on. Um, I worked for a kind of a small boutique agency. So, uh, we didn't have, you know, a cabillion clients that we had to deal with. Like we were really selective. We were lucky to work with, you know, a handful of people at a time, so it was really kind of a one-on-one thing, but what, it was really different at the um, licensing agency. What was the uh, genre you worked in? Um, well, I mean, we always had our eye on sort of mainstream fiction and nonfiction. Like at the time it was what can be an Oprah book, you know, right. um, what can be the next big whatever, I guess now it like be like Dr. Phil or whatever. Um, I mean, that wasn't always my personal thing. I was always trying to work because I, I come from more of the literary fiction um, sort of short story writing side of it. So I was always trying to look for like cool young writers or stuff that like cool young people would like. So right. we were kind of looking for all sorts of things. But.
0: Were, you, were you in that industry when sort of the true emergence of young adult fiction as being mainstream happened?
1: No, I kind of left a little bit before that. I left around 2008, 2009. And I think they were slowly just, you know, I think they were picking up more on younger readers, like maybe people in their twenties. Um, I mean, Harry Potter was a thing, and I think Harry Potter was really a big uh, turning point for the whole YA adult crossover. Yeah, and, um, and Twilight. I, oh, true. At Twilight, Twilight also for existed. Sure. Yeah, but uh, I, I mean, it definitely is, has exploded, you know, recently. So I, I kind of missed it a little bit. I was kind of I left kind of right in the beginning of it.
0: You have a degree in creative writing and, and English. What, did you write a lot as a kid?
1: Um, I did. I have these books that we would publish or quote-unquote publish in third and fourth grade. Um, so I think it was really encouraged um, at the schools that I went to. And, yeah, I think I always – like my dad, I remember growing up, he, he's a computer guy. So we always had computers in the house, and there was always something for me to type on. Um. And I really think that, I mean, the the English degree, working in publishing, that all has really informed my life as a crafter, like more than I think it would, you know, sort of in publishing where we're dealing with turning art into commerce. And that's sort of exactly what we're doing in the craft industry as well. Um, And so, yeah, I think that I'll just remember things that I I learned at the agency, you know, that I was like, oh, I never thought this would apply to my life now, but it's kind of interesting how it does.
0: That has actually been a really common theme of artists that I've interviewed for this podcast, um, including myself, or not just artists, crafters, or entrepreneurs, about how um, you wouldn't have necessarily known that you were on a direct path mm. to what you're doing now when you were, you know, working that job as a 16 year old or getting a <laughs> degree in X or or taking the. But when you step back and look at where you are now it all makes sense. Like these little skills that you pick up. Um, And I think that's what's so fascinating um, and why I wanted to do this podcast in the first place about people who are making a living in the creative industries is that there isn't necessarily the direct path
1: Mm -hmm. that there
0: might be if you were going to become an engineer or um, a law professor or whatever. Um, And so I, I love hearing stories about that, about how, Because I think that, um, you know, you don't, most kids don't grow maybe they will now but you know when we were kids you didn't think that what we do now was a thing was a job and it may or may not have I mean it was there we did have four mothers that were I go through like I collect these you know vintage craft magazines and you know I'll see an ad for this like a crafty tv host I guess it was just a local thing and I had no idea I had no idea that's super cool because we weren't that wasn't something that we was was made Part of our awareness growing up, so and I think it is more now. But I, I just I think it's really an important message for people to know that just because that you didn't start out on this pathway, just because you didn't go to art school or you didn't grow up in a studio somewhere, doesn't mean that you won't find your own path.
1: True. Yes, true. I think that I that makes me just think of my best friend. She got an MFA in fashion recently, and she's not working in the fashion world now. And I think she finds that. Maybe somewhat frustrating or disappointing and you know it, maybe it's just not your time yet you know you've and, and anything you're doing in the meantime is going to inform what you do later so I think that you know even if you did go to art school you might not be using it today but you never know what's going to happen tomorrow yeah
0: so you started crocheting your food-based scarves, just for yourself, or just scarves in general for yourself, around 2005. Did something yep. happen around that time that you just picked up a hook? Or were you already crocheting?
1: Um, I think that you know, just sort of with the internet and um, the internet be kind of kind of kind of becoming more a part of you know everyone's everyday life. I think I just became more aware of people hand spinning and hand dyeing yarn. And just this whole universe of all this gorgeous yarn that didn't exist in stores, I think, um, woke up that crocheting part of me. Uh, And so I I remember in particular, Heidi from My Paper Crane, like, I kept buying all of her, like, really lumpy, bumpy, colorful yarn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's what set me off. You know, it wasn't like all of a sudden lightning struck and I had to crochet a toast scarf. It was really like I just wanted to buy yarn (laughs) at that point. I was just hoarding really cool yarn. Right. Right.
0: Were you um had you already did you know how to crochet at that point or
1: Yeah, I mean it's something I would do sort of throughout the years to make gifts for people. Um I mean I wouldn't do it like every day or anything. You know might be like years before I'd pick up a hook again. Um, I've known my best friend since I was really little and it was actually her grandmother who taught us how to crochet uh, one time when we were staying with her. So it was a sort of this thing that I thought was really funny, you know, as a 10-year-old kid to do, like, I super nerdy. I thought it was so cool, like, crocheting at school, <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. I was like the biggest dork, but I was like, look at this thing that I can do. It was just kind of this weird, random, quirky thing. So I, it, I did fall upon it throughout the years, but I didn't start doing it really regularly until the whole hand-spun yarn obsession. Yeah.
0: Does your best friend who's in fashion ever incorporate crochet into our pieces?
1: Actually, no. <laughs> like, How dare she? <laughs> if we collaborate on something, it's still probably something she's sewing or right. taping or whatever. Um, I, For some reason, it's never crossed my mind for us to really combine forces in that way. Um, but maybe we should in the future think on that. <laughs> when... Um-
0: what is your attraction or what what was the um the sort of seed for your interest in sort of fashion food
1: i do think it was partly the yarn like i found myself drawn to colorways that ultimately reminded me of things like food you know like cotton candy or like scrambled eggs or like the lettuce on a salad and i've always really been oddly attracted to faux food like Play food. Um, I had a really big Fisher Price fake food collection, and there was like a licensed McDonald's line. And I had all the plastic chicken McNuggets. Like, oh, I remember those. They were so cool. So I think for me, that imagery is really nostalgic. Um, I don't know. I just think that food imagery is really powerful because it kind of calls upon all of your senses and even memories. Um, so for me to turn that into something wearable was, I mean just funny because I'm just a weird person and that just makes me laugh. Um, and it just like, it's fun for me to create too, and like an endless amount of ideas forever because there's so much different kind of food out there. So um, at first my mom was like, you know, you, you can be inspired by food, but maybe you shouldn't make this stuff look exactly like food because <laughs> I think she thought it was really out there. But um, I'll just remember that a lot because, like, you know, not everyone's going to get what you do, and that's okay. But just stick with what you want to do because I think being weird is a really great way to stick out in the world if you're trying to, you know, make your style known out there. 100%.
0: And I think, you know, it's like if you could ever write a letter to your 14-year-old self, and I say you on the collective, you know, meaning the collective – I think a, a, a really important message would be embrace those things that make you quote-unquote different because those are the things that are going to make you special as yes. an adult yes. and stand out. Um, and now, and just from a business perspective, especially in this day and age w- with technology, we are so oversaturated with talent.
1: <laughs> and yes. With,
0: and I mean, and also with lack of, but but there is so <laughs> much, there was so much just – great stuff out there that you really have to find your own special little pocket yes and that is something that you are you've been a master at did you it was it was this just you truly like you said being yourself or was there a strategy to you branding yourself so clearly um with with both kind of like that You've got this kind of like fruits magazine thing going on, yeah, and then yeah. and then um, and then of course like your foodie fashion.
1: Um, I mean, there was definite intention behind wanting to be specific about what I was putting out in the world. Like, I mean, when I was working at the agency, you know, my boss was kind of the woman who had everything, and there was nothing I could buy for her that she couldn't buy for herself. So I was always. Hand making her weird stuff, and I think she appreciated it on a certain level, and then just thought it was really wacky on another level. But she was like, "You need to have a store, you know. Like you need you need to be doing this." But in my brain, I knew like I was just giving her random things, like I was covering. Photo frames with cereal, or I was kind of ironing on. She was really into politics, so I was like, ironing on like George Bush's face onto underwear. Like, it was just kind of like I was doing this and that and the other thing. Yeah. And especially from working at the agency, you know, we're branding authors too. Um, and so I already had that idea planted in my brain like this branding thing is important yeah. you know like we, we make all these um uh, you know we're helping these authors write proposals and they're like there's like a, a competitive survey and a marketing analysis and I'm like oh this is this is important this this is applicable to what I'm doing so I really waited you know even though I had someone in my life like really encouraging me um you know to sell things that I made I was like I need to wait like I'm still marinating I'm still figuring out like who I want to be and what I want to do in that world. And that's something I always tell people too, when they're like, Oh, tell us some advice. I'm like, you know, put out a voice, you know, it's easier for people to remember what you do and who you are, if they can link you to a certain item or a certain style.
0: Yeah. But I I think it's really wise of you that you allow yourself to, or allowed yourself to let the, with this thing, whatever, whatever it was at the time to marinate a bit. That takes, that takes some discipline.
1: Well, I mean, it helps, you know, to have a full-time job at the same time. Good point. <laughs> so Excellent point. Like, your brain is a little bit occupied. But yeah, I think it's it's okay to be patient and sort of experiment with different things and figure out that thing that you really, really love and that you think you can really stand out with. At what
0: point did you start producing enough that you could um, you could do the craft show circuit? You could do renegade craft fairs or the other sort of fair type things?
1: Well, the first craft show that I did was uh, the first Maker Fair that came through the Bay Area, and I did I have help at that time? I still think I was trying to do it all on my own, and I really didn't bring very much at all. It was like 10 scarves and maybe like 20 brooches and a bunch of buttons. I had no idea what the heck I was doing. <laughs> like, um, That's still a lot to produce, though. Was, I mean, that's at least 100 hours worth of work, right, just true, those things. True, but when I looked at my table, yeah. you know, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I didn't even think of, like, how I was going to decorate the table. I just kind of just, I had no idea at all. And um, and then I didn't do another craft show for many years. Because <laughs> it's just like, this is a lot of work. No one really talks about how much freaking work <laughs> this is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I really had to wait until... I kind of had a, a small stable of crochet helpers uh, to really kind of do what I actually wanted to do with a show booth. And it, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of work not only in the product for a show, but you know, like the, the decor and the look. And there was just so many components uh, that it definitely took me a little while to be like okay with trying to plan a booth again. <laughs> it was kind of like traumatizing the first time. Right.
0: <laughs> but you came back with some pretty impressive displays. You did the... Um... You did this really cool, like, bento bar at yeah. a show. Talk about that a little bit, because that was really impressive. That was a lot of work and just so well uh, executed.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that was recently. That was just, I guess, last month. No, yeah, it just was in July. Yeah. Um, I did some pieces for a friend's art show. Uh, She owns a store called Japan LA, and she was celebrating her 10th anniversary of her store. And their theme for the art show was cute food. And I've very recently become obsessed with the art of bento box making, which are Japanese boxed lunches. And it can just look like, you know, food in a box, but there's also a style where people make the food look like, animals or the whole the whole box looks like a cartoon character like a like a Totoro rice ball or or something and like this is really cool just that all this care that goes into this food and it's it's so beautiful and it's totally artwork and it's not meant to last you know people just eat it. It, right. it but all this love goes into this meal that one person is making for another and I just became so kind of aesthetically fascinated by it and also just you know, just the love and the care that goes into this really temporary item. So it was like, I really kind of want to make bento boxes that are made to last. And, you know, you can mount them on a wall and it's something you can enjoy. So I made four bento boxes for that show. And I just sort of fired up my obsession with the whole thing. So I was like, it'd be really cool to put out all the separate food pieces, kind of like a school cafeteria, and people could come by the show booth and put together their own boxes, you know, with with whatever whatever food um, they thought was super cute or that was their actual favorite food item. So my best friend actually helped me create, it was kind of ramshackle, but it looked okay because we don't know how to work with wood. So we made like a sneeze guard and like my, the cafeteria area Uh, or the food area was actually just, you know, foam core with, um, you know, plastic containers hot glued on it. But it all kind of came together. I think people were really delighted by it. We kind of had to explain, you know, what a bento box was and what they could be doing with this display and the items in it. But it was really cool to watch, you know, men women children just everybody is kind of like what is this and get really into it and it was cool to see what boxes they put together and we took pictures of everyone's boxes and it was just kind of really just like kind of a fun hands-on experience for everybody yeah
0: it was, there was a, I saw a great picture of a little girl holding it up and just the smile on her face was just yeah. priceless um She's the best so it was cute. so sweet and then do you just charge per piece like as they're building like you would for a salad bar
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the questions were like, like, how much is this? And we're like, well, it just depends. (laughs) You know, so you can really pack it in there, or you can just, you know, buy one piece if you want, just, you know, if you want to walk away with extra tempura, and that's it, like, you can totally do that. So we wanted to keep it flexible. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, I'll put I'll make sure to put up a
0: picture of the display on your show notes page, because it really, um, it was really a sight to see. Oh, thank you. So you teamed up with the Craft Yarn Council recently. Um, They have... For, gosh, I guess maybe the past two years, their focus has been sort of the stress relief aspect of knitting and crochet. Um, And so they teamed up with you um, for this whole Lemons campaign. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I first started working with the Craft Garden Council when I was writing patterns uh, for Michaels.com for a year. And I think that the Craft and Council was looking for a pattern for something. And then the woman at Michael's I was working with recommended me. Um, so I'd worked with them a little bit before. And so for their situate stress campaign, I guess last year, maybe 2015, um, they approached me. They're like, we really want to put out a cute uh, stress ball pattern for stress awareness month. Um, do you maybe want to brainstorm and throw some ideas at us? And I was like, sure, that sounds awesome. And so I really wanted to do donut hole stress balls because, you know, I'm into pink and cute right, and cute. pastries. Yeah. Um, but the other idea I came at them with, with were the lemons, you know, so when life gives you lemons, you can, you know, crochet or knit lemons and situate your stress. And I think that really spoke to them. So uh, that, that's the idea that we ran with. Um, so yeah, I just uh, whipped up a crochet pattern for them. Someone on their end interpreted it into knit because unfortunately I'm a terrible knitter. <laughs> <laughs> um I made a little video for them and I had no idea like how far they were taking this idea. Um, because this year, you know, they had all the crochet and knit guilds come together and donate like thousands, I guess, of these yeah. knit and crochet yeah. lemons. And then they just like handed them out on tax day in New York City and it just became this huge thing and it was just really really cool what they did with that. I recently saw you or
0: actually just met you for the first time at a Vogue Knitting Live show in yeah. Pasadena and I was struck by the fact that you said that that, that was the first knitting show that you'd been that yeah. you'd really been a part of that normally you would go to you know like the craft shows that we were talking about earlier what what was um what was different about this sh- that type of show for you than, than going to some of the, you know, more craft based sort of store or uh, shows rather.
1: Mm, Well, I mean, definitely the audience is more specific. You know, at the craft shows, it's not necessarily people who have any interest in crocheting and knitting or even buying anything that's crochet or knit. Uh, So it's actually really cool to be an environment where, you know, people are walking around in shawls and scarves that they made and you know this is their universe and um they've heard of your book and they want to buy it and it was just really really neat and um just uh even people who hadn't who had no idea who I was were like I just want to sit here and crochet with you because you're cool and I'm like I think you're cool too so (laughs) it's a really really neat environment and a really wonderful experience I really loved it you um
0: mentioned doing a video for for the lemons campaign but you also I, would, I think that probably the first time that i became aware of you was several years ago when you did a video that was kind of i believe it was like a like a time lapse video of making your cupcake scarf mm-hmm. and you were that was pretty um advanced thinking for where we are in social media. Now everybody I mean now there's a time lapse aspect on our iPhones so that you can shoot it. I really feel like you pioneered that in a lot of ways. Like it was it was very it was very forward thinking uh, of you. And and honestly you do you try to come up with some really sort of kind of gimmick based great eye-catching videos. Now how much of how much of technology do you try to infuse in your marketing? I, you mentioned that your dad, you know, is a computer guy. Did yeah. you grow up? So did you grow up where technology was just always part of who you are? Or, or are you just embracing just sort of like a lot of the rest of us, just sort of riding the technology train and seeing where it takes you?
1: Um, As far as like, social media I feel like I'm kind of a dinosaur already like I'm actually kind of slow to adopt the new things like I don't have a snapchat and that makes me feel like a little old lady I but- don't either <laughs> I was like I tried it for 48 hours I'm like I don't get it I don't like it I did the same thing <laughs> now I feel like well behind you know like <laughs> I have friends who are like I have a snapchat to stay relevant and I was like oh great I'm doing it all wrong but <laughs> oh, that struggle is real <laughs> yeah. I feel you <laughs> But, I mean, technology's definitely been in my household. You know, like, my mom is super DIY, and she likes to, like, upholster, upholster furniture, and my dad's, like, doing things with motherboards. So we've always been making things, and we've always had, like, the computers, and, you know, we had, like, the, uh, what is it? whatever, what, what's the precursor to the DVD, like, the, the, the big disk? VHS. That, oh, oh, that they just called <laughs> them laser disks, right? Laser, sure, yeah. yeah. I can't remember the name of it anymore, but so we always had you know, the new thing, like, um, hardware-wise or And technology. those were
0: like, those laser players were like $1,000. It was no
1: joke. My dad was on it. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> I'm going to have one. I'm going to be the first one to have one. Yeah. it like, the karaoke machine at home, like, all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, in the beginning of when social media was just sort of starting to be a thing and people were asking for business advice, I'm like, you got to learn to em- embrace this stuff. You know, it's such a it's such a great tool for us to have now that we don't have to actually go door to door at a boutique to get, you know, sales. We can just put up a store online and people just find you like magic. And some people were like, Oh, I don't like technology. I don't like social media. And I'm not saying you don't have to get on board with some of it, but there's no way I would get to where I am now without it. You know, it's really invaluable. So, I don't know about the whole Snapchat thing, but I do love the Instagram and the Twitter and the Facebook, and that's okay for me, I think, for now. It's a lot already, I think, to manage as one person, so.
0: It is, it is, but social media really truly is magical. I mean, it's given, it's given, you know, us as women sort of uh, options, career options and family options that weren't around a generation ago, and Like, sure, we're still in the Wild West, that we're still all learning, there's not any rules, and sometimes it can be a little overwhelming and freaky. But if you can sort of just, you know, take a step back and be grateful that we even have this option now, um, it makes it a little bit less less daunting,
1: I think. Very true. I mean, I think also... Um, Maybe it's me being cranky and an old lady again, but sort of like, ah, like uh, there's a lot of ugliness on the internet, Mm -hmm. you know. There's a lot of negativity, but you just really have to step back and like think about how many great things there are too. And there's so much you can do with it, you know, if you kind of have a more positive attitude about it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean. There's no doubt that your that your stuff is absolute possible or positivity incarnate. Absolutely. I
1: try. I definitely try.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. You are the coolest, Twinkie. I'm so glad that I finally got to chat with you. um, And I look forward to seeing you, you know, on the crafty pathway for years to come.
1: Indeed. It was wonderful to meet you. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I wish we could chat all the time. (laughs) Uh, We can. Yeah. (laughs)
0: All right. Talk soon. Twinkie's patterns, products, and foodie fashion flair can be found through her website. For more info, links, photos of some of the pieces we mentioned in the episode today, and to enter to win a signed copy of Twinkie's latest book, Abode a la Mode, 20 Yummy Crochet Projects for Your Home, please check out this episode's show notes page at vickyhowellcom craftish. To enter, you just post a comment about which crocheted foodie item you're most excited to make the contest will end at midnight central time on august 10th thanks again to our sponsor sticker giant stickers are absolutely the foundation of grassroots marketing i remember when i had my own first craft-based business Mamarama, how i felt really legit once i received a sticker with a logo on it 15 years later and many business incarnations later i still love me a good sticker to promote my brand So whether you're a garage band, motivational speaker, artist, or even a local politician, check out StickerGiant.com for affordable swag for your message. Use code StickerStory for 20% off. If you enjoy this podcast, this episode, or all of the other episodes, please just take a moment to give a rating or review on iTunes. With your help, we can spread the word, which means we will gain more listeners, which then means that great companies like Sticker Giant will continue to sponsor us, and we'll be able to bring you even more conversations with inspiring, creative people. And also, it just kind of makes our hearts happy to know that you dig what we're doing. Craftish is a Campbell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. On the next episode of Craftish, I sit down with knitter, crocheter, and Grammy award-winning songwriter of iconic tunes like Love You I Do from Dreamgirls and Man in the Mirror sung by the Michael Jackson, the vibrant and lovely Saida Garrett. That episode will go live next Thursday. Until then, high five yourself for taking a little time to wallow in creativity. Breathe in, craft out. Bye.